see something in Scripture that you're wrestling with, and and uh, you just dig deep and deeper and deeper, and, and you just find so many awesome truths. And there's a subject here that I want to share with you today that I hope will lay some foundation for what we're going to be studying in the in the book of Luke. I'm really excited to see us in the Gospel of Luke going through it. And we are. This is a little ahead of the time that we get into Christ calling out of his apostles, his disciples. But this morning, I want to I want to share a message that I think will set some of the stage for what Christ took those apostles and the disciples through in what was going to be the core value of their life, their relationship with Christ, and their ministry today. And I'd like us to think about a couple of words today. Uh, we're going to flash one up on the screen. It's up there. It's the Greek term doulos. Would you repeat that after me? Doulos? What's it mean? Pardon? I'm sorry? A slave, yes, good. Our translations have put it oftentimes servant or bond servant. But I'm going to say to you today, that's not even close to the intensity in the original Greek of what that term means. Slave is exactly what it means. One who is no longer autonomous, belongs to themselves, but they belong to another. They do not have the right to self-determination and the like. Their responsibility for what happens to them is in the hands of a master who is over them. Now, in the ancient Middle East, in the, the Western Greek culture of the New Testament world, this was not a popular term in any way, shape, or form. To the Greeks and later the Romans, what was valued was freedom, autonomy. The Greek found his sense of personal dignity in the fact that he was free and able to manage his own life as he chose instead of being the servant, the slave of another who would, who would basically have will to do over him whatever he wanted to. This desire, this passion for freedom came in the context of the fact that so many in the ancient Near Eastern world at this time were slaves. It's estimated that there were 60 million or more slaves in the Roman Empire at the time of Christ. A lot of people who were in the hands of someone else and their whole life and their whole destiny was was determined by someone other than themselves. The term doulos, slave, and, and you study it in the original Greek. The idea is not a servant who has the freedom to choose. It's the idea of one who belongs, is owned by another, and bound to do the will of another. That person had the right, that master had the right and the authority to call all the shots regarding your life if you were a slave. Your will was subordinate to your master. Now, to call somebody yes, a doulos, a slave, is one of the greatest insults that you could offer to anybody at, that time, at the time of Christ. And it's interesting how the Greek-Roman mindset of the day literally despised anyone who was regarded as a slave. Uh, the Jews at the time of Christ keenly felt what it was like to be under the domination of someone else, the Roman Empire. If any of you get a chance to read Bill O'Reilly's work on killing Christ... Riley does an excellent job of documenting what it was like to be a Jew under the authority of the Roman government. 
And boy, at the time of Christ's coming, the Jews were anticipating that day when they would no longer be under the thumb of their captors and would be free. Only the problem that the Jews had on that, they wanted freedom on their own terms, not God's terms. And that was the struggle that they ran into with Christ. It's interesting when you take a look at our own American culture today, how we value freedom and autonomy. And the problem is, in our culture today, we have walked away from the values of our founding forefathers who did value freedom and autonomy, but with one one very important caveat. That freedom and that autonomy was a gift from God and was always to be done under the authority of God and in submission to God. That was a value that our founding forefathers treasured and understood that they walked under the providential hand and rule of God and had a responsibility back to God. And in our postmodern culture today, we're walking away from that. We're a lot more like the Greek and the Roman who said, I treasure self-autonomy at the expense of any submission to anyone, any God, the God, I will walk on my own. And if God tries to challenge me, I get mad. And we've got a lot of Christians mad at God in our culture today. A lot. That's the mindset of the day of Christ. But enter Jesus and the apostles, the New Testament writers. And they brought in some thinking that challenged this this thought of autonomy, of total freedom to do whatever I want to do. Do you know what the preferred, honored title of the early church leaders was? Doulos, slave. Let's look for just a few moments, and then we've got the scriptures on the PowerPoint here for you to be able to look at these with me. At what Jesus and the apostles, the New Testament writers, said of themselves, the titles that they chose to use for themselves. Jesus, Mark chapter 10, verses 43 through 45. Jesus makes this powerful statement. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be the slave, the doulos of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The Apostle Paul would later write in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 7. Speaking of Christ, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a doulos, a slave, and being made in the likeness of men. We'll come back and develop that a little more in just a few moments. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter, Romans chapter 1, verse 2, makes this statement. Note the word order here. Paul, a doulos slave of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Word order is important in the Greek because what the writers wanted to emphasize as the most important came first in the text. And Paul does not emphasize first and foremost his apostleship authority. What he emphasizes first of all was who genuinely had the authority. And Paul says, it's Jesus Christ. I am his slave. And because I am his slave, with him being king, I have been put into the position of apostleship, but always with the understanding that I do the will of my master, Jesus Christ. And his ministry was to 
proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was there to proclaim Jesus' message. Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Jesus Christ. Philemon 1, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I miss Titus 1, 1, Paul a slave and apostle of Christ. But it's interesting in Philemon 1, Paul a prisoner of Christ. The terminology and the idea is that Paul was a prisoner of a conquering king who had taken him captive in war. And now he, as a prisoner, was bound to do the will of his captive master, who was Jesus Christ. Praise God, Christ is a good master, a good conquering king. And we'll look at that here in just a few moments. But you see the mindset of servitude that these men had. Peter, Second Peter 1.1, or excuse me, James, let me hit that. James 1.1, James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus. Peter, Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. Jude, the half-brother of Jesus. Jude, one, a, Jude, a slave of Christ. John 1, Revelation 1.1, 1, 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his slave the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his slave, John. You know, in our day, we don't like the title servant-slave. We don't. There are so many works out there, even in our Christian circles, on leadership and the like. And it is important to be a leader for Jesus Christ, but it always, always has to come down to this foundation, this core value, that we are first and foremost slaves of Jesus Christ. These were not light words from these men. I want you to think about them as real people. They had the same passions and same desires that you and I had. They grew up under that Roman Empire thumb of oppression. They wanted to be free. They wanted to have the right of self-determination. They wanted to have the values that we have of rising up to the point where you have other people serving you. And that was one of the great battles for those apostles as they grew under the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ as disciples We want to be first in the kingdom of heaven. I want the rest of you to serve me. But something happened that changed their hearts, that changed their values. I want us to take a look at three light bulbs that came on in the mind of these guys. These are three essential truths that the Lord Jesus Christ has literally drilled into these guys every day that they walked with him. They were values that radically changed their lives in the first century A.D. And they're values that I pray will change my life and yours today in the 21st century as we serve Jesus Christ. Principle number one, I'd like you to turn to Romans chapter 1. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 23. The principle is no one, no one is autonomous. We are all slaves to one of two owners. We are either slaves of sin or we are slaves of righteousness in Jesus Christ. I'm going to read some different verses here. We're going to just kind of read down through a number of selected passages here, but they really bring out this fact that we are slaves one way or the other, that there is no such thing as the myth of self-rule, uh, self-autonomy. Ch- chapter 6, beginning at verse 5, For if we have be- become united with him, Jesus Christ, in the likeness of his death, 
Certainly we shall be also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self is crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Verse 7, for he who has died is freed from sin. Before Christ, you and I were slaves to sin. There is no way around it, no matter how much man-made freedom and autonomy that we think we had, we were slaves to that sin nature, which basically says, I will do my own thing, God, in spite of you rather than because of you. I will be like you, God, and I will be self-autonomous. That's a myth. That is a myth. We are slaves to the sinful nature that stands in opposition to God in every way, shape, or form. And before Christ, that was what we served, period. No matter how much freedom we thought we had, we were in the slave market of sin. When you look at what is said here, and we're going to start in verse 8 and read on down, listen to the words of what Jesus is saying here through Paul. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master. Same word that we get our English word Lord from. Death is no longer Lord over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign or, literally from the Greek, be your Lord in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but instead present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be your Lord or master. Why? Because you are not under law but you are under the grace of God. Because of what Christ did in dying for our sins, because he paid the ransom price for our sin, the slavery, the shackles of sin, being our master, have been ripped off. Sin no longer has absolute power over us. We have a freedom now in Christ to be able to serve a new master, Paul goes on to say in verse 15, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Meganoito in the Greek. May it never be. Don't even go there, he says. would be a good English translation. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either a sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God. Though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Paul says in verse 20, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You didn't even go there. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things which you are now ashamed? But the outcome of these things is death of sin when we're enslaved to it. But having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome of eternal life. What Jesus Christ did on that cross opened the opportunity for you and I 
to no longer serve sin. It opened the opportunity for us to become slaves of God, slaves of righteousness, slaves of those who are pursuing the agenda of God as our new master rather than being slaves to sinful passions. What an incredible blessing. What an incredible freedom. Yes, we have a master, but he is a good and godly master. He is equipping us in learning how to grow in the new nature that has been given to us in Jesus Christ that follows after the heart of God that is the freedom from sin and the consequences of sin eventually resulting in death. But instead, we grow in learning how to walk in his ways, being set apart from sin to be being set apart to God to walk in righteousness. That's the new servanthood that we have. And it is the way to go, period, on that. It's the way of righteousness, the way of walking in right relationship with our God. I'd want us to, to think about that as we, as we go to our next point. Which slave am I? Am I a slave of sin or am I a slave of righteousness unto God? Am I a slave of God like Jesus Christ? Which brings us to our second principle, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, if you'd like to turn there with me. If you and I want to know and understand what it is to be a slave of righteousness, we've got a choice to make. We must intentionally and daily submit to following Jesus Christ's example of being a slave to God and others. And Jesus himself, as God the Son, models to us what this looks like like in real life. This is one of the incredible purposes of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. When God became one of us in taking on our human nature and flesh apart from sin, he models to you and I what it's like to walk with God daily. That's why our study in the Gospel of Luke and the study in the Gospels is so important because we get the perfect role model to teach us how to be able to do this in real life. Paul opens this chapter with this challenge to people who are growing as disciples of Jesus Christ. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, Paul says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, He's challenging us what it is to walk free of the slavery of sin because the slavery to sin tears us away from these values. He goes on to say, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Slavery to sin, we're looking out for number one, and that's it. But if we're going to be a slave of Christ, a slave of God, a slave of righteousness, we're looking out to the larger body and to a lost world out there who needs Christ. And Paul locks us in on a laser lock focus on this. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Look to Christ to see how this works in real life. Study his life. Study his ministry. Study his teaching. Study his interaction with the, with the apostles. 
study to see how he walked as a slave and servant of God to learn how we are to do that in real life. Paul says in verse 6 of Christ, who although he existed in the form of God, this word means basically everything that made up God the Father is true of the very same essence of Jesus Christ. He is equally God as the second person of the Godhead to God the Father, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to at all costs. But the next verse, verse 7, the great kenosis, the self-emptying passage of speaking of Jesus Christ, he emptied himself, taking the form of a doulos. Most of your translations render it servant or bondservant. Translate it stronger. It is that way in the original Greek. He took the form of a slave. No longer was he pursuing anything of self-autonomy. No longer was he asserting what he would do in behalf of himself. But he put himself at the mastery of God the Father. What the Father called of him to do, he dedicated himself to doing without question without challenge. He put himself under the authority of the Father. And in the context of this passage, he made himself a slave to us of our incredible need because without God the Son being that sacrifice for the sin of the world, you and I would still be trapped in our sins with no hope of redemption, no hope of eternal life. Somebody had to buy us out of the slave market of sin. And Jesus Christ was the one on whom the Father laid in those hours of darkness on the cross. He died not only the physical death we deserve to die, but the Father laid on his Son the full equivalent of hell. Him being infinite, eternal God, the Son, was the only one who could do this. Being an infinite, eternal being, he died the full equivalent of what eternity in hell would be for you and I. The Father laid out the full equivalent of that for everyone, past, present, and future, on his Son in those hours of darkness on the cross. He died that for us in our place. He became our servant so that redemption might be possible for us. That was the purchase price of our slavery to sin. And Jesus put himself at the full disposal of the Father's will and of our need. He became the Father's slave and our slave so that we could be purchased and be made recipients of eternal life. You are looking at the incredible, perfect example of how to be a slave of God when you look at Jesus Christ, his son, study his life, get to know him personally, get to know his heart from the scriptures. It is so crucial that you and I are immersing ourselves in the word of God and getting to know Jesus Christ through his word and through praying, talking, communicating with him. Because then we will learn what God is calling us to be as slaves of Jesus Christ and slaves of God. The challenge to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, let me read these precious verses to you. 
Paul says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, God in, in us, in the form of the Holy Spirit, whom you have from God and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. If you and I are going to know what true freedom is to be a slave of God, we've got to renounce our self-autonomy, our personal agendas, and come to God and say, Lord, what is it that you would have me to do? To learn how to do that daily. And it's a battle. There's no ifs, ands, buts about it. It is a battle. Because we like to go back to the slavery of sin. For the moment, it seems pleasant, but it's the way to destruction. But God has given us a way of freedom by learning what it is to become a slave, a servant of God. I love the closing part of Philippians 2 because Christ is a model for us in that as well. Christ made that decision to be our slave to be a slave ultimately to the purposes of God the Father. And look at how the Father regards being a slave of God. He says there in verse 9, for this reason also God, speaking of God the Father, highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Father has honored his Son for this incredible act of servitude and exalted him to the place of being Lord of Lords, King of Kings. It doesn't say it directly here, but you know something? Christ honors those who give their lives to him, who renounce self-autonomy and say, I am a slave of God. I'm a slave of God. Let's take a look in our third point at how this works. Go over with me to John chapter 15 for our closing point. This is our third principle. To be called a friend of God, one must first be a committed slave of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to think about the timing of when Jesus says this. The apostles have been walking with Christ now. Christ has been in his public ministry three years, and they've been maybe a year and a half into being intensely disciples, followers. And in that term, with him being master and teacher, they're slaves, they're servants, And Jesus has been drilling home this part into their lives. Guys, you're no longer your own. I am going to equip you to know what the mind and heart of God is all about. And you are servants. You are slaves of God, just like I am now. I am master and Lord. You are my disciples. He's been hammering that home every day that they've been walking with him. He's been focusing on that. We in our culture love the idea, God's my buddy. But that's not what Christ was focusing in on in these early days. Guys, you have been pursuing slavery to sin. Now I'm going to teach you a different way, and you're going to learn what it is to be a slave of God. And I'm going to flesh out before you in real life how that works out. And these guys have been studying the life of Christ. They've been observing. They've been learning. He's put them into situations where they're having to learn how to put it into practice in their own lives. And they struggle with it. They bounce up and down like a yo-yo 
uh, as they're growing in this. But Jesus makes this incredible statement just hours before he's going to the cross. This statement that we want to close out our message with today. Look with me at verse 14 of John chapter 15. You are my friends if you do what I command you. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I want you to think about this term, friendship with God, friendship with Jesus Christ. It is a rare thing in Scripture when God calls someone his friend. This was a term that was reserved for people like Abraham and Moses. They were friends of God. They sold out all together for God and God's purposes in their lives. They were coping growing models. They were not perfect role models of this. But in the end, God looks and evaluates their lives and he says, these men were my friends. And he looks at these apostles with all of their ups and downs that we have in our lives too. But the process of where they are at at this point in time, Jesus makes an astounding statement. You are my friends. You're going to understand that I am God, the Son incarnate in human flesh, and you've received that. You've believed me. You have followed me. You've given up everything to join me. In a short time, they were going to take a huge fall, and they were going to run when Jesus was arrested. And they were going to wonder if Christ was going to have anything more to do with them after that. But Jesus makes this astounding statement knowing exactly what they were going to be doing. You are my friends if you do what I command you. If you acknowledge I am Lord and you are my slave, you are my friends. Jesus says in the next verse, no longer do I call you slaves. The slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all the things I've heard from my father. I have made known to you. A master did not have to give an accounting to his slave for what he was telling his slave to do. But with these guys taking on the heart of Christ, Jesus has been revealing to them what the father is doing. Because they were trusted, trusted friends. They had learned what it was to renounce their autonomy. They gave it up to follow after him. They don't have it all together. I love Max Anders and the class I took from him at Grace Seminary. Christ is the only perfect role model. All the rest of us are coping growing models. These guys were the supreme example of ordinary people like you and I. They weren't anything, there was nothing about them that was extraordinary. Christ deliberately chose the ordinary people to be his followers because they, they didn't have anything to cling to. I belong to you, Lord, and if there's anything good that's going to be developed in my life, it's because you are building it in me. Just like us. They stand out in contrast to the multitudes who followed Christ for what, he could, what they could get out of him. John 5, when Christ challenged the multitudes for wanting to make him king because he was going to feed them, and Christ confronted them. And all those multitudes of the 5,000 and their families walked away except 
the twelve. I love Peter's comment. Lord, to whom shall we go? You're the only one who has the words of eternal life. They didn't walk away. They stuck with him all the way to this point. Christ calls them his friends. Christ calls them his friends. You know, we live in a culture today where many of us would glibly say, Jesus is my friend. Jesus is my friend. But the fact of the matter is, Jesus will only call us his friend if we first and foremost give him my heart, my life, that we renounce our self-autonomy and say, Lord, I am your servant. Whatever you call me to do, and this is a daily following, I renounce my self-autonomy and I give myself to you. And again, I want to challenge you. This will be an up and down struggle. There will be days when we do it successfully. There will be days when we utterly flop. Keep studying in Acts. These disciples, their growth was going to go on under the tutelage of the Holy Spirit. They would, though, grow ever upward. And that's the thing that God wants you and I to carry away today. Even though my life is not all together today, even though I don't serve him perfectly, this side of glory, he's not looking for perfection. But what he is looking forward to is our dedicating ourselves to growing again and following after him and learning how to renounce our self-autonomy to follow him. I want to close out with, with four points for you to ponder that been points that I'm pondering for my own life on this. Whose slave am I? Whose slave am I? Not by my estimation, but by Jesus Christ's estimation. Am I his slave and a slave to righteousness in him? Or am I a slave to sin? We are not free to be Lord over ourselves. Nobody is. Nobody is. Whose slave am I? Have I surrendered my autonomy to put Jesus, his will, his mission as the greatest priorities of my daily life? And again, I will be honest with you, this is a daily struggle. It is a daily decision that we have to make if we want to be the friend of God. Thirdly, how intimate am I with Jesus Christ? I so appreciate the challenge that Wayne and Jake and Dan before him gave to you and I. A challenge that we need to hear day by day. And it's the heart of those verses earlier in the chapter in John 15, where Christ is talking about that abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. John 15, 7, he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. Why? Because Jesus is dwelling and living within us and we are surrendering to him. His word is infiltrating every aspect of our lives to where we are learning what is on the heart of God, what is the will of God. And we begin praying that way. Our prayer life transforms as it's being adjusted by the word of God to no longer be surrendered to self-autonomy and sin. But we are learning how to pray what God wants. And God answers those kinds of prayers. But how intimate am I with Jesus Christ? John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the true and living God, 
and Jesus Christ whom you sent. That we may know him personally, relationally. That's what that word know in the original Greek entails. Think about this. When you go out in the community, you have been authorized to say, I know God personally. I know him personally. And he knows me. And when you and I stand faithfully on the word of God, he has given us the privilege as his commissioned representatives to speak for him. To speak for him. Because we are servants of the most high God. And it's fascinating when you take a look at that term slavery. Look at Daniel and others who rose to high positions as slaves but as authorized spokesmen for those who were masters over them. You and I speak for God when we represent God on the basis of his word. And the last question, and folks, this is far and away the hardest question of any of these. It's one thing for me to call Jesus my friend, but the really harder question is, Does Jesus, from his standpoint, call me his friend? He did not call these apostles his friend until after they had dedicated themselves to walk in him. They had dedicated themselves to grow in him. They still remained moldable under his hand, and the Spirit of God would continue that process in their lives in the days ahead. It's a growing process. But does Jesus have so much of my heart that he would call me his friend? Some days I feel like, yeah. Other days I ask, Lord, am I still your friend? Am I still your friend? That's the question that God wants us to carry away today. Jesus wants us to be his friends, not by our estimation, but by his. And it's the passion of his heart. I want to close out. I want you to look with me at John chapter 17, second and verse 24. Because we so often think about friendship with God from what it means from our standpoint. But I want to take you into the heart of Christ for just a second. And Jesus makes a statement here that just blows my mind. Jesus is praying to the Father, that great high priestly prayer. And in verse 24, he makes an astounding statement that talks about his perspective on friendship with Christ. Father, I desire that they also, and he's speaking in the immediate context of these disciples and us as the future disciples whom he's praying for, And he said, I desire that they also whom you have given with me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you love me before the foundation of the world. Christ is anticipating that in the very near future, he will be ascended at the Father's right hand. He will be in the fullness and the magnificence of his glory as God the Son. Peter, James, and John got to see a glimpse of that at the transfiguration, at the Mount of Transfiguration. But Jesus is anticipating when the cross is done, the price has been paid, when my service to the Father as his slave has been completed, 
and I will be ascended at the right hand of the Father. I will be in the fullness of my glory. And he was anticipating that. He was looking forward to it. But he's expressing his desire that these who have become slaves of God in this life, slaves of Jesus Christ, be there to celebrate that with him. Because of the intimacy of their friendship with him, he couldn't wait for them to be there to celebrate with him. I got a taste of that, Sarah and I did, when our son Matt was on a cross-country team that repeated three times as state champions. And there was something that really impressed me about those boys. They got the awards up on the platform there at Kearney, at the University of Nebraska at Kearney, and they were honored and had the gold medals hung around their neck. And given the, the trophy and everything, and it was really a, a wonderful celebration. But the thing that really struck me about these boys, what they really looked forward to was not just being on the platform that day, but they couldn't wait to get home to celebrate with their close friends. That was what they were really looking forward to, getting home to the people they were close to and having the chance to celebrate that victory with them. Our friendship means so much to Jesus that he can't wait for the day that you and I get to come home to be with him if we are his close friend. If we have sold out as slaves to God, as slaves to Jesus Christ, he can't wait to welcome us home so that we get to celebrate with him something that means so much to him. I leave you with that thought. It's not just about Jesus being my friend, but am I the friend of Jesus? Are you the friend of Jesus? Are we a church that is the friend of Jesus? Because we have realized self-autonomy is not the way to go. Let's sell out and be the slaves of Jesus Christ. And that friendship is not only important to us from our side of it, but it means everything to Jesus Christ to have those who are his slaves, his servants in this life, fellowshipping together with him right now, but anticipating that homecoming in heaven. He can't wait to have his friends home, to be with him face to face. But again, we've got to make the commitment this side of glory first. Does Jesus look at me and you and call us his friends? I leave you with that question today. But let's dedicate ourselves to being the best friends of Jesus that we can be. Father, as we go into the book of Luke, we're going to see how you built this into these men. And there are so many things for us yet to learn. And Father, we just confess we are up and down and all over the page. But Father, may we dedicate ourselves to renouncing the right to rule ourselves, to be found your slaves, your servants, those who have dedicated ourselves to living under your authority. And Father, in it we will be freed from sin and the consequences of sin to walk in the glorious freedom of being slaves of God. Father, search our hearts through to see what areas need to be renounced.
Father, may we rise up. May we commit to growing. May we renounce those things that hinder our friendship. And Father, may we be totally dedicated to being the best friends of Jesus possible. Thank you, Spirit of God, that you will empower this. In Jesus' name, amen.